He's alive and He reigns. And that is what we're going to be learning about in, as we said last week, the Gospel of Daniel. And we just sang the Gospel, and now we get to look once again at the Gospel. It's going to take us a little while to get to where it gets very specific in the book of Daniel, where we talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ, but it's coming in chapter 7. And uh, we've got some preparation to do before then. And so we began last week uh, this uh, verse-by-verse study of, of this uh, classic Old Testament book. And I gave a general overview of uh, the book to help us see the big picture and set the main theme of the book clearly in our minds. And uh, I also uh, included, a, we included an outline in the bulletin again this week. If you weren't here last Sunday... Uh, just wanted to make sure you got a copy of this and you could maybe use this as a bookmark for our study in the book of Daniel. Just stick it there in the front of your uh, front, the first chapter of Daniel and uh, just gives a little bit of an overview here of the book and uh, some of the key verses and an outline that we're going to be following as we go through the stories uh, about Daniel, uh, the visions of Daniel, and uh, both to bring comfort, to build confidence. And, uh, but we said the most important thing and to remember is that our God reigns. Our God reigns. And we said that um, the, the, a good subtitle would be serving the king of heaven in a world of pawns. And if you weren't here last week uh, and you're wondering where did you come up with that title, uh, please go back and listen to last week's sermon online. And we took some time uh, to unpack some key verses uh, in the first seven chapters that make it um, uh, obvious, blatantly obvious uh, that, uh, that uh, Daniel was all about serving the king of heaven um, in a world of pawns. And uh, we're going to see that play itself out um, as, we, as we go through this book. But uh, for now, I think that is just a, a simple, faithful, creative way to capture the, the point of the entire book. And so hopefully that will stay in the forefront of your mind as we go through this uh, together. But let's return to Daniel chapter 1 and pick up where we left off last week. And last week, we just looked at the first two verses, and I promised you that we wouldn't go that slow uh, every week. And so this morning, we're going to, Lord willing, get through uh, the rest of chapter 1, because it all goes together here. Let me just read the chapter as we begin, and again, the first two verses as well, just to remind us of the context here. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the verses, excuse me, some of the verses, some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans." The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice of food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belshazzar, 
to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials, and the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king." But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine and they were to, uh, that they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus, the king. Father, we thank you for your precious word and uh, particularly this, um, this Old Testament book that we uh, know and love so well. And I pray that as we begin looking at um, the main character, uh, the human, main human character here uh, in this story, uh, that you would use uh, Daniel's example, Lord, to encourage us, to inspire us, to convict us, Father, and ultimately to conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, it's, it's Jesus that we want to be like even more than we want to be like Daniel, and I pray that that would become clear today as we unpack your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the human author of the book of Daniel was obviously Daniel, a God-fearing Jew who was captured by King Nebuchadnezzar and taken to Babylon where he faithfully served as a prophet of God and an advisor to kings throughout the entire 70 years of Babylonian exile. Now, what is unique about Daniel uh, being in the the prophets, we think of the prophets being um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then all, of course, the, the minor prophets. But what sets Daniel apart is that he wasn't a prophet by profession like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or others. He was an administrator in a pagan palace who moonlighted as a prophet, if you will. God used his interpretation of other people's dreams as well as his own personal dreams to encourage the exiled Jews that that God was still in control, sovereignly directing kings and kingdoms uh, to fulfill his future plan for them after the times of the Gentiles. And we said last week that uh, verses 1 and 2 launched 
into the times of the Gentiles where, where it was no longer the nation of Israel that was at the center uh, of, of human history, but it was all these other Gentile nations that God raised up to, to punish Israel for losing their distinctness, their holiness, and, and thereby losing their effectiveness. And so this was the times of the Gentiles. And, and yet Daniel's life is what God used to model how he wanted the Jews to live in a secular society while they waited for this eternal kingdom to come. And I believe that God raised up Daniel to show the Jews how God had originally intended them uh, to live and, and to use them to make a name for him among the Gentiles. Now, if you know anything about the history of the nation of Israel, you know that God chose the nation of Israel, to be set apart from all the other nations of the world. And he wanted to use them to help every other nation to come to know him as the one true God. And so the key to Israel's usefulness was her what? Her holiness. And so God ordained special laws for them to to keep so that they would remain holy or set apart, different, distinct from all the other nations of the world. And he promised them as long as they obeyed his commands, they would be blessed and he would use them to be a witness to the Gentiles. However, he also warned them if they disobeyed his commands and they blended in with the nations around them through idolatry and intermarry, um, intermarrying and things like that, uh, that they would be cursed and he would use the Gentile nations themselves to punish them. Well, as we know, Israel compromised God's holy standards, and as a result, they lost their distinction and their testimony. And so consequently, God allowed the Assyrians and the Babylonians to capture them and take them into exile. The Assyrians captured Israel in the north, the, 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 the ten northern tribes, and then the Babylonians came and captured the two southern tribes, and that's what we saw in verses 1 and 2. And, and the, the whole point was that they were brought into exile where they would be brought to repentance so that God could eventually restore them to the promised land and once again use them to lead other nations to him. When the book of Daniel was written here, the Jews were enslaved in a foreign land, dealing with the consequences of compromising their holiness and ruining their effectiveness. And I think God capitalized on this teachable moment by providing them with a sterling example of what it looks like to live a a holy, uncompromising life and how God is able to effectively use a person who remains set apart to make a powerful impact for him in secular society. And I was thinking about this, I I find this interesting that of all the well-known characters in the Bible... Daniel is the only one that I can think of about which nothing bad is written. I mean, you think about Noah. There's a lot of good written about him, but there's some bad things written about him. Same thing with Abraham and Moses and David. I mean, these are the heroes of the Old Testament, but I can't think of anyone besides Daniel who nothing bad is written about in the Scriptures. And so I don't think there's any better example in the Bible for us to learn from than Daniel when it comes to remaining set apart from and making an impact in the secular society in which we live. Uh, There's a 
a quote there at the bottom of your application questions by James Montgomery Boyce, um, and he does a great job uh, describing this great example that we have here uh, in the book uh, or in the, in the person uh, in the life of Daniel. Make sure you don't miss that quote when you're discussing that with your grow group or going through it in your quiet time this week. But the point is this, the greatest way for us as Christians to make an impact in our world is not to become like the world, but to be different from the world. Uh, unfortunately, there's this thought pattern and this movement in the church today that, hey, let's, let's be like the world. If we look like the world and we sound like the world and we act like the world and we make our church kind of feel like the world, guess what? We'll be attractive to the world. We'll make a greater impact in the world by becoming like the world. But that's not what we learn here from the book of Daniel. It's the exact opposite. The greatest way for us to make an impact in the world is not to become like the world, not to to conform the church to look like the world or feel like the world or sound like the world, but to be different from the world. And that's why we need to be careful that we don't lose our distinction from the rest of the world by the way we think, by the way we act, by the way we talk, by the way we dress, by the way we spend our money, by the music that we listen to and the TV shows that we watch and the movies that we go see and the places that we go. Why? Because if we lose our distinction, if we just blend in to the rest of the world, we will lose our ability to impact the world the way God intended. Why? Because when the rest of the world sees us living our lives, doing the same mundane things that they do, but with a totally different attitude, with a totally different set of values, it's that radical difference that catches their attention. And it exposes their lack of hope and and purpose, and it convicts them of their sin and causes them to, to seek God to transform their life through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in the same way that he's transformed our lives. And as we're going to see, Daniel understood that the way to make the greatest impact on those around him was not to be like them, but to be different from them. And that's why he courageously committed himself to remain holy and set apart from the society in which he lived. Now, when we consider the the courageous uncompromising spirit modeled in the book of Daniel, what typically comes to our minds is, is when Daniel was in the lion's den, right? Or, or when his three friends were in the fiery furnace, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in that fiery furnace. But, but the story of Daniel and his three friends in the king's court here in chapter 1, I think is often overshadowed and overlooked in light of these other greater experiences. And yet it was this seemingly insignificant decision to refuse to eat the king's food and wine that prepared them for the more difficult, dramatic decisions to refuse to bow to the king's statue and to refuse to obey the king's decrees. And I'm convinced that that Daniel's unwavering resolve not to compromise his convictions here in, in, in chapter one was foundational to the incredible impact his life made in the pagan culture of his day. Luke chapter 16, verse 10, Jesus said, he who is faithful in little things is faithful in what? Greater things. And so listen, if you, if you don't, it's the little things that matter, right? 
And if you can't stand strong on the little things and stay true in the little things, what's going to happen when the big things come along? What we see here, and, and this is just one way to outline this chapter, is that there are four encouragements here to live a courageous, uncompromising life. Four encouragements to live a courageous, uncompromising life. And these four encouragements, I think, should motivate all of us to not compromise no matter the cost, so that God can use us to make a powerful impact on the pagan culture in which we are living in for His glory. Now, if you have the notes in front of you, you see that each of the points of the outline focuses on who? Daniel or God? God, right? And this is another way to remind us that God is the hero of the book of Daniel. God is, is, is playing the, the leading role here. Daniel is, is really just a supporting role here. And, and even though uh, his supporting role dominates the scene and his integrity is a key theme, none of what happened here or later on in this book would have been possible if it weren't for God. Remember verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, Kim Judah into his hand. Uh, verse 9, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And again in verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature. So we need to keep in mind that God is the main character and his sovereignty is the main theme. Hopefully that's encouraging to remember just off the bat because I think sometimes when we compare ourselves to people in the Bible, it's easy to be discouraged because we tend to think, well, I'm no Daniel, (laughs) I could never live up to the same standard or have the same kind of impact because I don't have that same kind of courage or, or that same kind of conviction or maybe even that same kind of opportunity. But guess what? You should be encouraged to know that you have the same God. You may not be Daniel, but you know Daniel's God. And so the emphasis here is on what God can do in and through all of us whether our name is Daniel or not. So let's look at these four encouragements this morning. Number one, God allows us to be in conditions of compromise. God allows us to be in conditions of compromise. Again, from a human perspective, verses one and two, things look pretty bad here. Where's God? Has he forgotten us? Has he deserted us? Or worse, has he been defeated? All the sacred articles that used to be in our temple are now in the temple of the gods of Babylonian in Babylon. Doesn't look good, but again, we need to remember it was the Lord, verse 2, who gave. God is sovereignly in control of this entire thing. This was all part of God's sovereign plan for his beloved nation. And again, not only did he allow the articles of the temple to be taken away, but also some of his choice servants. Verse 3. It says, then the king ordered Ashpen as the chief of his officials to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. 
Use in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. We're introduced to a, a man named Ashpenaz. This was Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man. He was responsible for all the people who served in the king's palace. And the king ordered him to bring some of the the men or the young men, uh, probably the ages of 13 to 16. So you need to keep this in mind that uh, the events we're seeing unfold before us here, that, that, that Daniel and his and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, would have been in junior high or high school. That's the age of these, of these young men. And uh, they, they were royalty. Uh, they were healthy. They were good-looking. They were smart. Uh, they were physically, mentally, socially the best. This was the cream of the crop. And so Nebuchadnezzar told Ashman, hey, I want you to bring me the cream of the crop. And we're going to put him in this royal academy, a three-year training program, and we're going to, we're going to teach him Akkadian and Sumerian and, 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 and Babylonian literature and history and architecture and science and, and math. And again, granted, they had no choice in this matter, Daniel and his friends, and yet these young men, as we're going to see, thrived under secular education. Now, let me just say this. I don't believe this passage can be used as some kind of biblical mandate to send our kids to public schools. No more than Deuteronomy 6 can be used as a biblical mandate to homeschool our children, or Psalm 1 can be used as a biblical mandate for private Christian school. How or where we choose to educate our children is an extra-biblical issue. It's a matter of preference. It's a matter of discernment and wisdom. But I bring this up just to point out that I think this serves as a great example of how with God's help, it is possible for Christian young people to receive a secular education and not cave in to the worldly environment around them, but to stand up and be a powerful witness for Jesus Christ. I was just talking to a a new family last week that I met for the first time, and, and they just said, hey, we're looking for a church where, where our kids can be encouraged and equipped to make an impact on their public school campus. I said, well, I hope you came to the right place. In fact, come next Sunday, because we're going to talk about that from the book of Daniel. Now, again, I'm not advocating that, that all of us should put our kids in, in public schools or that one method of schooling is better than another. That's a decision that every, every one of us as parents has to make before the Lord based on a number of factors, like where your kid's at with the Lord and, and what are the schooling options available to you, what are your financial means, all these different decisions. In fact, you may make one decision one year and another decision the next year. We, we tried them all uh, in, the, in the process of, of educating our kids. I'm simply guarding against the legalistic, divisive mentality that I see creeping into more and more churches today that that states or implies that it's a sin to have your kids in public schools, state-sponsored schools, government-sponsored schools, as it's often called, and that homeschool or Christian school is God's will for every Christian family. Listen, going into all the world... To make disciples includes going to our public school campuses and letting our light shine before men, being salt and light. 
And I think the best way for a, a Christian student to be a light on their secular campus is to be the best student on campus. I went to public school all the way through high school, and by God's grace, when I graduated as a senior, I was awarded the highest award that our high school gave, and it was voted by the, by the students, it was voted by your peers, and it was for who, who they thought had made the greatest contribution to their high school. Now, I don't say that to pat myself on the back or toot my own horn, but to simply say that by the grace of God, um, as a Christian young man on a very secular public school campus, I was able to be a light for Christ. Was I a perfect example all the time? No. But I can tell you this, when kids saw me walking down the hall on Wednesday, they all avoided me because they knew I was going to invite them to church. Because Wednesday night, we had Wednesday night youth group, and they, I was going to invite them, and I was passing out flyers going down the hall, and people got used to me going, oh, here he comes, let's go over here. And, and, uh, but what the point was, I mean, there was other people, there was other, uh, the other two gals who were um, up for the same award. Uh, we, I'll never forget this. I mean, they put our picture, all three of our pictures in the paper and, and said, these are the three students that are up for this award. It was called the Emerald Shield Award. And, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I looked at their pictures and I read the article. And I thought, you know what? These girls have done way more to contribute to this school than I ever did. They were there after school every day. They were involved in sports. They were involved in all sorts of clubs. They were in charge of all the dances. They were in charge of everything. They worked so hard, and they contributed so much to the school. I'm like, what am I doing in this list? But at the end of the day, it was an unforgettable lesson that I think it was character that what made, made the difference in, in, in the, my fellow students' minds. It wasn't who made the most posters you know, for the pep rally. It was who made an impact on the campus, who impacted other people's lives through their life. And again, that was to the glory of God. I, 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 I just say that because I'll never forget that experience. I'm so grateful that God gave me that experience on a public school campus. In fact, that's when I believe God called me into the ministry because I was surrounded every day by pagans who were telling me about the major rager they had this weekend, and, oh, dude, you missed it, and you should have come to the party. I'm like, really, what'd you do? Oh, we had this keg, dude, and we got our mugs, and we would stand in line, and we'd get some beer. We'd, we'd get in the back of the line, and we'd drink it all, and by the time we were up front, it was all done. We were, um, seriously, that's what you did this weekend? And my heart just broke for them, and I wanted them to know the gospel. I wanted to give them the hope of Jesus Christ. And so that was when God just burdened my heart to want to teach young people the truth of the scriptures. And at the time, I didn't have a youth pastor in my life. I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a youth pastor. And so somebody asked me when I was in high school, if you asked me, what do you want to do for them? And I'd say, I want to be a youth speaker. That's all I knew to say. I want to be a youth speaker. I want to teach young people the Bible. Now, granted, public schools have changed a lot since when I was there. But listen, our God is still the same God. That hasn't changed. And the point here is that God has called us to be set apart, not separatists. Big difference between being set apart and being separatists. Let's notice what he goes on to say here. Now among, verse 6, now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned a name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. It says among them, so there was more than just Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. There was, someone suggested there was approximately 75 other young men in this special program. 
And apparently these four guys mentioned are the only ones who refuse to compromise. And uh, this was a, a very difficult situation they were placed in because they even changed their names from ones that glorified God to ones that honored the gods of the Babylonians. Daniel means God is judge. And they changed his name to Belshazzar, which Bel is prince. This is the god of Baal. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Shadrach means Aku is exalted. Mishael means who is like the Lord. Meshach is who is like Aku. And then Azariah means Lord is my help. And Abednego is servant of Nebo. I mean, this was a blatant attempt to remove from their lives any reference to God. They actually changed their names. And they wanted to take God totally out of the picture and make them pure Babylonians. And by the way, who was doing all this? Was it the Babylonians or was it the Lord? Right, The Lord was doing all these things. God allowed these teenagers to be in a very compromising situation. Now, just put yourself in their sandals for a second. Consider some of the the factors that that created such intense pressure for them to compromise. There's just four things you might want to write down this morning. Number one, there was an arrangement of assimilation. There was an arrangement of assimilation. Webster's Dictionary says that assimilation is a system used to bring someone to likeness, to influence so as to make similar. Essentially, what they were doing was they were brainwashing Daniel and his, and his friends. They were trying to make them into Babylonians. They wanted them to eat like a Babylonian and sleep like a Babylonian and walk and talk like a Babylonian and think like a Babylonian and breathe like a Babylonian. And after three years, their goal was that no one would ever know that they were Israelites. They would have thought, well, they, they grew up in Babylon. These are Babylonian young people. So there was an arrangement of assimilation. Secondly, there was assurance of advancement. There was assurance of advancement here. These guys got a full ride scholarship to BU. That's Babylonian University, right? University of Babylon. I mean, the best clothes, the best food, best storm. I mean, talk about a scholarship program here, right? Full ride. And great job opportunities in the future. They they were assured a lifetime career as part of the king's personal staff. But if they refused to abide by by the requirements of this scholarship program, not only would they lose their scholarship, they might even lose their head. That's what Aspenaz was concerned about when Daniel said, hey, do you mind if we just eat vegetables? He goes, I don't know about you, but I might lose my head. And so there was this arrangement of assimilation, assurance of advancement, but there was also an absence of accountability. There was an absence of accountability. These young men, based on their names, all of which gave glory and honor to Jehovah God, they were born in good Hebrew homes where they were taught by their parents to love and honor God, probably were in the habit of going to the temple regularly for worship, and now they were hundreds of miles away, literally hundreds of miles away from mom and dad, away from their home church, and they had to decide whether their relationship with God was their own or just their parents, whether they were just kind of going through the motions, 
Because it's all they ever knew, or was this real for them? Whether their commitment to God was one of convenience or one of conviction. If you ever sent a, a child off to college, you know that that's a real defining moment in that young person's life. You do everything you can, right, to raise them to, to love Christ and to honor Him, and you hopefully have, uh, have uh, developed a, uh, somebody who's independently dependent on Christ. And then the scaffolding comes away, and the parents kind of go away, and the youth pastors go away, and the, the home church goes, goes away, and they're kind of standing there on their own, and, and they're either going to stand or they're going to fall. Because they typically get away from the accountability, right, when they go off to college. So there was this absence, absence of accountability. They were miles, uh, hundreds of miles away from home. And then lastly, and maybe this is the most difficult thing of all, is there was an attitude of apathy. There was this attitude of apathy. They lived in an age of compromise. I mean, that's why they were where they were. That's why the city of Jerusalem lay desolate and, and Daniel and his friends were prisoners in exile in Babylon. Because their nation had compromised. And apparently they were surrounded by so-called devout Jews who were rejecting their upbringing and abandoning their morals and punting their faith and, and choosing just to go for it. Again, the example, the fact that, that, that you only have mentioned Daniel and his three friends tells me that everyone else was just blending into the Babylonian society. Saying, hey, this is a sweet deal, man. Let's go for it. Now I ask you, do these four things sound familiar? An arrangement of assimilation, assurance of advancement, absence of accountability, attitude of apathy. I think these are factors that we face daily. And we feel the pressure to compromise our holiness in almost every context that we run in in our world. And, and whenever we face a compromising situation, I think these, these four factors are, are usually in play at some point. One or more, or all of them, are, are present. And the question is, will we be a conformer or a transformer? Romans chapter 12 says it very clearly. Therefore I urge you, brethren by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be what? I can't hear you. Conform to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I think that's one of the greatest problems in Christianity and in churches today is that a lot of Christians have just caved in and conformed to the world. They, we've allowed the world to press us into their mold. We become like them. We're not distinct. We're not set apart. You put a Christian next to a non-Christian in our day and age, you can hardly tell the difference. That's the problem. There should be a radical difference between us and the rest of the world. And so 
what will keep us from giving in to this pressure to, to compromise is the encouragement of knowing that God, in his sovereignty, has allowed us to be in whatever compromising situation we find ourselves in, and it's for a reason, and he will help us not compromise. And that's our second encouragement here, that God grants us the courage to not compromise. God allows us to be in situations of compromise, but then he grants us the courage to not compromise. Verse 8 of Daniel chapter 1, but Daniel made up his mind. I love the NIV. If you've got an NIV in front of you, what does it say? But Daniel what? January 1st, this is when we make all these what? Resolutions. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Notice the but there. It's a contrast. Look at this this situation of compromise in verses 3 through 7, and anybody would have easily given in to all that, but not Daniel. But... Daniel determined to not compromise, to remain set apart, to stay pure, to be holy. Notice he says he, he refused to drink the wine and to eat the food, and so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not, what? Defile himself. That he would not be unclean or impure. He would not be contaminated. And I can just hear maybe some of his buddies. Daniel. Dude, come on, are you serious? They put us in a new school, they give us new names, and you're okay with all that, and then they give us some prime rib and a little wine, and you get all fanatical. What's the big deal? I think there were probably two reasons why Daniel refused to eat the rule of food and wine. Number one was the Jewish dietary laws, the Jewish dietary laws. And you know that God had given Israel very strict laws concerning what they could and couldn't eat. And not only did they have to eat the right kind of food, it had to be prepared a certain way. And so Daniel possibly didn't want to violate these restrictions by eating the royal food and wine that was not kosher, if you will. So it may have been the Jewish dietary laws, but it was definitely the pagan idolatry customs. And it was the custom of pagan nations in those days that before they would serve food, it was first offered to their gods and their idols. And we know that God forbid the Jews from participating in idolatry. And so Daniel wanted to avoid being associated with any form of idolatry whatsoever. And the bottom line was that that Daniel knew for whatever reason, okay, that eating that royal food and wine would cause him to lose his distinction, which would mean that he would also lose his ability to witness to the people around him. I mean, talk about a bold witness here. He he just goes to Aspen as he says, listen, I'm sorry, I can't eat that stuff because it's going to defile me. I think, I know I've been guilty of this in, in the past, especially when I was a young person, and sometimes I would wimp out by making some cowardly excuse why I didn't want to do certain things. Like, my buddies all got together. I remember this distinctly. It was yesterday, and 
we all were going to get together and watch a movie, and, and uh, I had no say in what movie was going to be uh, rented, and, and so they popped in this R-rated movie, and I had heard about this movie, and here we are, all my, all my buddies, high school buddies are sitting around this room, and here comes the, here comes the movie, and it's coming on, and I'm getting like all itchy under my armpits, you know, and thinking, oh, what am I going to do here? This is not going to be good, and, and so I got up and said, hey, guys, I got to go. I got, I got an early morning tomorrow, and I got in my car, and I drove home, and I thought, man, I just totally copped out. I just totally wimped out. I don't have an early morning tomorrow. What I should have got up and said, hey guys, I can't watch this because it'll defile me. (laughs) That would have been a bold Daniel-like answer, wouldn't it? I mean, think about it. Maybe you're a businessman, and uh, as is often the case on business trips that, that uh, you know, the, the people want to take you out to be entertained, and so they take you to a bar or maybe even a, a strip club, and, and, and you've got to make a decision. And you'd be like, oh, you know, oh, man, it's getting late. I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of tired, guys. Well, you guys go on without me. I'm going to go to bed. Really? How about saying, hey, guys, you know what? You see this thing right here? I'm a married man, and I can't go in there because that will defile me. That will defile my wife. That will defile my marriage. I'm going back to the room. Or maybe you're a, a housewife and, and you got into the habit of getting together with this little play group and yet that play group it has turned into a bunch, moms, a bunch of moms sitting around and just gossiping and, and slandering and saying all sorts of bad things about their husbands or other people in the church. And, and so they you say, hey, why don't you come to play group with us tomorrow? And you're like, oh, you know, I can't. I've got other things to do. And you make excuses instead of saying, you know what, I'm not coming to that thing because that defiles me. Because what you guys are talking about is dishonoring to the Lord. The point is we have to have the guts to stand up for our convictions and not be ashamed to tell people the real reason why we don't take part in things that are sinful or questionable. It will defile me. And again, we don't have to be arrogant or obnoxious about it. In fact, we can learn a lesson from Daniel here. He didn't make any threats. He didn't stage a protest and start picketing around in the palace. What did he do? He, he very humbly, wisely, privately appealed to Ashpenaz and graciously explained his convictions. In other words, God, God gave Daniel the wisdom to know where to draw the line. There's all sorts of things that have been coming at him. They wanted to change this. They wanted him to do this. They wanted him to not do this. And all of a sudden, he says, here's some meat. Here's some wine. He says, no, I'm sorry. This is where it stops. So he had the wisdom to know where to draw the line, and he had the courage to not step over that. Had a dear friend years ago when our kids were little taught us to pray a very simple prayer for our kids every morning, especially when they were in public school. Lord, Give them the wisdom to know the difference between right and wrong and the courage to do what's right. No matter what anybody else is doing. Give them the wisdom to know the difference between right and wrong and give them the courage to do what's right no matter what what everybody else is doing. I mean, what an encouragement it is to know that when we pray for wisdom and courage to not compromise, God's going to answer that prayer. God's going to answer that prayer. And so God not only puts us in situations of compromise, he grants us the courage to not compromise. And then number three, this is the third encouragement, God honors our commitment to not compromise. 
God honors our commitment to not compromise. And again, here it is, a reminder here, just in case we forgot. This isn't about Daniel so much as it's about God. Verse 9, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. The God who sovereignly allowed them to be in that situation to begin with sovereignly provided them a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation, no trial has overtaken you, but that which is common to man and God is what? Faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you're able, but with every temptation, every trial, he'll provide a way of escape so you can endure it. Again, this is just a, an encouraging reminder that, that God is in control of everything, including what rulers and authorities think and feel and do. Proverbs 21.1, the, the king's heart are like channels of, of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 16.7, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. And so look at verse 10. He appeals to Aspenaz, the commander of the officials, said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should you see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. I might lose my life over this deal. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials has appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azri, please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and be appearance and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. Do you see the contrast here that Ashpenaz was, 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 was scared for his life? But there was not one sense of fear in Daniel's heart. Why? Because he was confident that God would protect him. Some, someone said this about this situation, quote, when we live uncompromising lives, we will experience supernatural protection. God protects those who are committed to him. Usually we're tempted to compromise when we're afraid of the consequences of standing for the truth. But if we didn't compromise, God would protect us in trouble. As soon as we do compromise truth, we forfeit, forfeit that protection. Look at verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. So Aspen has said, okay, I'll take a chance on you guys. At the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. Now, beloved, listen, this is not a biblical mandate for the Daniel diet, okay? And unfortunately, we, we're just goofy, and we do these kinds of things, and we read Scripture and go, oh, look, there's a biblical way to eat, you know, that we should all get a Neutroninja and just eat vegetables and drink water and we'll be on, more honoring to God and we'll be more healthy. Well, it, it, don't you see in the context of this that Aspenaz was concerned that, that, that the, the Babylonian young men were eating the food offered to the king, which was the best food in the land. The, the, these, these, these guys were to be in optimum health. They weren't just sitting around gorging themselves and getting fat, okay? They were, they were on, on a regimented system here, and they were giving them the aspirin. thought, we're going to give you the best food possible so you can be the strongest and the healthiest, and, and we're just going to take that away and just give you vegetables and water? And yet, after 10 days, they were 
better and fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. In other words, their health went the opposite way than it should have. Who did that? God did. God did. And I think it's easy to see God's protection demonstrated in the fiery furnace and the lion's den. But we also need to see it here in this marked improvement in their physical condition in in just a short period of time, just 10 days. I mean, I've been on some crash diets and listen, not much happened in 10 days. Trust me, I didn't, okay? So this is, this is, again, this is no less miraculous than what happened in the fire first and the lion's den. Well, what was going on here? God honored these three boys. Well, I'm thinking of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God honored those, those three boys' commitment to not bow, right, to that statue of Nebuchadnezzar by protecting them in the fiery furnace. God honored Daniel's future commitment to not stop praying, even though it was against the law, by protecting them in the lion's den. Well, in the same way, he honored all of their commitment to not eat the royal food and wine by making them healthier than everyone else when they shouldn't have been. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to eat healthy and We've got a neutron ninja, so it's not that bad, okay? So it's all balance, right? But don't, don't use this as a biblical mandate. Well, that's the way God intended for us to eat. It's, it's, in fact, it's saying the exact opposite. You need to eat more than just vegetables and water because it will, your health will suffer, but not if God's in control of this miraculous situation. The point is we need to be encouraged by the fact that God will always honor us and protect us when we commit ourselves to obey the principles in his word without compromise. That's the point. That's the point. Sorry to become a dietitian there. I probably said something wrong in the midst of all that, but you can forgive me for that. I'll stick to being a pastor, right? A theologian. Number four, last encouragement. Okay, not only does God put us in situations of compromise, And uh, he gives us the courage not to compromise. He honors our commitment to not compromise. Number four, he uses us when we don't compromise. He uses us when we don't compromise. Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, here it is again, God gave them knowledge and intelligence and every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. That must have been a scary day. This was like graduation day. And they have to go before Nebuchadnezzar and, sh- and show them what they got, you know, show them their stuff. And the king talked with them. He interviewed them. And out of all the ones, not, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. In other words, he's like, you know what? After looking at all the guys, he goes, I want those four guys. They are head and shoulders above the rest. Verse 20, asks for every matter of wisdom and understanding, about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. Again, don't assume that, well, those guys must have been the smartest guys in the class. They must have been brilliant. I don't think so. I think God made them ten times smarter, ten times better than all the others. So God causes them to rise to the top, head and shoulders above the rest. Again, God blessed them so much, they were not just a little bit smarter, 
than everyone else in the entire kingdom. They were 10 times smarter. The, the emphasis is interesting there. And then look at verse 21. I love verse 21. It, it's a very a subtle, kind of almost like um, a passing comment, an afterthought. And Daniel continued into the first year of Cyrus the king. In the NIV, it says, and Daniel remained. I love that wording. Daniel remained. In other words, he outlived Nebuchadnezzar. He outlived Belshazzar. He outlived Darius. He lasted through 70 years of exile. He lived to see the day when Cyrus, the the king of the Medes and the Persians, decreed that the Jews could return to the Holy Land to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. He was around for a long time. And during those years of exile, God used Daniel to make a great name for himself. This wasn't about Daniel and his reputation so much as it was God's reputation. And the Babylonians and, 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 and the Medes and the Persians, every king that Daniel served ended up honoring and glorifying Daniel's God. Just look at this. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 47, this is Nebuchadnezzar when he, uh, this is what he said after he and Daniel interpreted this dream. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. In chapter 3, verse 26, after God rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. This is what the king said. He came near to the furnace. This is chapter 3, verse 26, and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw and regarded these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, here it is, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as to to serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation or tongue that speaks anything of offense, offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house is reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no God who is able to deliver in this way. Love that. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, after he was a cow for seven years, came back to his senses by the grace of God and this is how he responded. This is chapter 4, verse 34. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures uh, from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he's not, He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so that I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just and he's able to humble those who walk in pride. I think that dude got saved. And then look at Darius in, in Daniel chapter 6. After the lion's den, 
verse 26, this is how Darius responds, I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever and his, command, or his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has, deli- who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And again, so this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And guess what? Daniel remains to this day. Does he not? In the pages of this Old Testament book, and God continues to use his example of an uncompromising, holy life to impact you and to impact me, to impact the church. And my hope and prayer is that the effectiveness of his life would encourage you, would encourage me to live a holy life uncompromising life so that God can also use us to make a a huge impact for his glory. Are you an effective tool in the hand of God to make an impact like Daniel made? Are, Are people like aware that your God is something special? that they need to consider? Listen, if you just blend into the world, it just blurs the lines and it just dulls your effectiveness. I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'll never forget Years ago, standing at a party with, um, it was an adult party, it was, you know, here in Texas, and we were all standing around, and, and uh, there was plenty of alcohol available, and, um, you know, the majority of people were drinking alcohol, and uh, just walking around with their bottle or their glass or whatever, and, and I just looked, and I, and I thought, you know what? I know some of these people love Christ. And from my vantage point, not trying to be legalistic, right? I was thinking, how, what is the best way to make an input, impact here in this setting? I mean, we're all here to celebrate something that was fine to celebrate. And nobody was getting drunk per se, but is this really just to kind of, we're just kind of all blending together. It's kind of blurry here. I was really concerned. It was just really blurry. It was just a blurry setting. And there was, I couldn't tell who was a Christian, who wasn't a Christian. And I thought, what a simple way to take a stand and say, you know what, give me an iced tea, you know, give me a Coke, and just be set apart, just be different. And uh, I'll never forget an experience I had years ago when I was uh, in college, and uh, one of my best buddies um, got married, and it was, uh, this wedding was uh, held up in, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the place in New York where they do all the horse racing. My dad's going to have to remember where that fancy place is. The Saratoga Springs, man. This is, have you ever been to Saratoga? My dad's a horseman, so he knows. So Saratoga Springs, and man, we were up there in this, this fancy schmancy like mansion that they were having this, this wedding at. I was like, felt completely out of my league, but I was his best man. And so here we were 
sitting around this table, and of course there was a bunch of alcohol and a bunch of dancing and all this kind of stuff, and so we were there, and it was, uh, um, you know, we were just having conversation, and I'll never forget sitting across the table with me was a guy from another Christian college on the East Coast who's advertised themselves as being distinctly Christian. I just will never forget that. Distinctly Christian was their motto. And here was this guy across the table, and from the way he was acting and the things, the way, what he was saying and the things he was doing, I, wouldn't, I, I didn't see any difference between him and, and everyone else there. And, and I'll never forget just when it was time to kind of give the speech that the best man's supposed to do, uh, everybody grabbed their champagne and I grabbed my water. And the guy sitting across from me from that says, hey, you got the wrong glass. I said, no, I got the right glass. <laughs> I walked up to the front and, and I gave my little speech and I and honored my buddy and, and cheers and everybody drank their champagne. I drank the water and, and, uh, and I wasn't thinking anything of it. It's not like I'm saying all this to say, look how holy I am, look how spiritual I am. It was just a conviction I had in my heart that I don't want to conform to the world. I want to be different. And I'll never forget as we were wrapping up that wedding party and I was about to leave and drive home, a guy who was part of the wedding party, another one of the groomsmen, came running up to me as I was leaving and he just grabbed me and he said, there's something different about you. And that's all he said. And he left. And I left. And as I drove home, that, convert, that, that one little expression, there's something different about you, I've never forgot that. And it's, it, it was nothing huge, nothing major, right? Just don't blend in. Don't blur the lines. Be distinct. Be different. Be holy. Be set apart. This was not a don't drink sermon, okay? It was an example, one example of many examples that we could use about how you can remain set apart in a secular society. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, look at Daniel um, and his holy, uncompromising life. We know ultimately you get all the glory and all the honor that we follow Daniel as he followed Christ, if you will. And so, Lord, thank you for um, just challenging us to think through what it takes to make an impact uh, in, in a secular society in a pagan culture and it's we're very well aware that we are living in an increasingly compromised culture from the top down and lord it it should be easier to to be set apart as things get worse and worse lord it, it won't be as hard for us to stick out like a sore thumb it'll just be very natural and i pray that you would just work in each one of our hearts lord that none of us would be legalistic or self-righteous in the way we uh, respond to this message, but it would just be a great opportunity for us to meditate and, and, and munch on this truth and, and to really consider how it practically applies to each of our lives and the people that we influence and the, the settings that you've placed us in, the, the homes, the families, the, the friends, the workplace, the schools. Lord, I pray that we would be as sharp and as effective a tool as possible in your hand to make great impacts for Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.